Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and joining me now is Professor Claire Wakefield. Claire is the director of the Mindaroo Foundation's Cancer Mission. Claire, welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's good to have you on the show. We're going to get into vaping in a minute, but I want to start off by first of all talking about your work, because you've worked in the cancer space for many, many years. It's it's pretty well established and, and known now, the link between cancer and tobacco, yes? Yes, absolutely. There's a very clear link uh, and something that we're really proud of in Australia is the is the continuing to decline rates of tobacco use in Australia. It's fantastic. Yeah. And in terms of the, the, the cancer link, are we, there's many top types of cancer, you know, that we can get in the body. Is it yeah. just lung that we get from tobacco or is it sort of more widespread? Yeah, it's more widespread. There's multiple organs that can be affected by cigarette smoking, um, obviously cancer related and multiple different types of cancers and then also other health conditions as well. So it's certainly something that is, um, you know, to be avoided at all costs. Mm. I, I think by comparison to something like alcohol, alcohol seems to have a fairly rapid health decline response do we know why that is why it is that tobacco sort of takes so long it seems like it takes a long time for a lot of people to end up quite sick yeah that's a good question i'm not sure about the answer to that but it is it's an important point because um, when we talk about vaping in a minute we haven't had enough time to watch Mm. that same progression in vaping yet so but it is a good point that it took 10 20 even 30 years to work out the exact implications of tobacco smoking on people's health yeah yeah, it's funny i mean i'm sure you know i'm a bit older than you i think but i still remember you know watching television shows where you know the doctor will walk in smoking yeah it was so entrenched in our culture wasn't it yeah it was bizarre how how deep it got in the culture and how quickly um and um you know not to just keep talking about vaping but just Mm. seeing some of those similarities in terms of the the spread um you know it's a little bit eerie to be honest yeah it's it's back to the future type scenario in terms of cigarettes in australia like you mentioned how well we've done what what has led to that great sort of decline in cigarette use because obviously this was i remember one of the big things was when suddenly there was, I think there was a court case around a, a bus driver getting secondhand cigarette smoke um, cancer and, and then all of a sudden things, you know, there was a lot of things changing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was multifactorial and Australia really led the way in in approaching it with all different angles. Lots of behavioural kind of campaigns that happened, lots of public education, um, legal avenues. So I think it was that kind of multi-factor government involvement, Mm. warning labels, all of those things together um, worked to kind of synergistically improve the rates of smoking, which was fantastic. It's certainly not the case that one thing will fix or change people's Mm. behaviour. It needs to be a kind of entire program of work um, that wraps around a person to help them to change behavior yeah i mean these things are highly addictive right so like it's not okay to just say hey you need to stop you know like there's yeah, going to be support mechanisms yes um uh, some people can quit without any support um but many people need support and deserve support so that mm. they can quit successfully yeah. um, and the other thing that's important to know with cigarettes and then it also um, seems to be true for um, e-cigarettes as well is that often it's you can't it's often not 
um, not easy to quit once and then you're done. It's often a kind of like learning to ride a bike. You need to try right. and you need to try and quit once and then you fall off the bike again and then you try again and then you fall off the bike again till the point where you realize you've actually successfully quit. And it's not uh, it's not um, a shame if you you know can't um, quit the first time. You just keep trying. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to me because our our medical and health system is often somewhat impenetrable. For, for other things mm. and yet this is something that as you say like if you have to try three times to get through that quitting process the the support levels there i know that we have some really good you know programs in place now but that must be hard for people to to stay on to stay on the bike as you yeah you absolutely um and there's so many external factors as well that tempt people back off the bike yeah. um so yeah absolutely it's an important area the whole area of cessation support is really critical for this field yeah now we were doing pretty well with um the cigarette reduction then all of a sudden there's been this explosion in in vaping products we we had Sandro De Mayo from um, Vic Health on at the start of the year. What what has happened in the last year, and you know where are we in the sort of vaping space at the moment? Like how how substantial is the problem? It's pretty substantial. So Mindaroo Foundation did some research, which exactly answers that question. And we surveyed about two and a half thousand young people, so mm-hmm. fourteen to twenty five year olds, um, a year ago. So in July twenty twenty two, and then we did the same survey again uh, only a few months ago, t- July twenty twenty three. So we have exact twelve month right. change data, uh, and it's pretty worrying there are increases, particularly in our 18 to um, 25-year-olds. Overall, our data showed that one, uh, 3 in 10 um, young people have vaped in the last 30 days across the whole country, which is 3 in 10, three in ten huge number, um, and that actually 1 in 10, which actually converts to about 500,000 or half a million young people, are vaping every single day. Um, so it's not infrequent, uh, and that rate has gone up um, significantly. So particularly in that young adult age group it's sort of moved from potentially being a kind of social once a month at a party situation to quite a different picture now of a lot of people vaping you know multiple times a day so so just to come back to that one in ten mm-hmm. is is vaping every single day yeah that's right it's kind of mind-blowing isn't it well it's more than i think you could get to do their homework I mean, I mean that that is such an enormous number. I, I think when we look at some things that have similar, you know, similar numbers. You know, and you and I before we started this discussion out in the in the green room, we're talking about endometriosis, and that affects about one in nine women, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, those numbers are staggering when we hear them. Yeah. But one in ten kids, how the devil? Has that happened? I think it slipped under the radar. Um, the the biggest increase seems to have been through the COVID period, mm-hmm. and I think we were focused on other things. Yep. Um, and it just kind of snuck in uh, while no one was looking um, to the point that it's now you know really prevalent and also really um, hard for young people to quit, like we were talking about with right. cigarettes. Um, and and that progression, I think, of being a kind of you know a fun party thing to being a much more significant dependence, um, I think has come as a surprise to many. Yeah. Now, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that a underage person cannot go and buy a nicotine product legally. Absolutely. Right. Actually, an overage person cannot either. Uh, right. So yeah, right. all nicotine vapes are illegal without a prescription. Right. However, in our study, 80% of young people, including teenagers, said that it's very easy to buy a vape. Right. And presumably they have no idea of the nicotine levels 
in 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 these either so yeah. you know like there's oh, no really no understanding of what's in there yeah absolutely so um many vapes will have nicotine free written on them but you absolutely cannot trust that because even when they're labeled as nicotine free they commonly do have nicotine right. anyway and in different doses so you have no sense of when you um use a vape you don't know if you're getting no nicotine a little bit of nicotine or a lot of nicotine uh, and then on top of that um a recent study showed that um found that there was 243 other chemicals in the vapes that they tested Um, many of those are things we recognize which don't sound great to have in your lungs like formaldehyde Um, (laughs) and then also probably even more concerning is many that we have no idea about Um, they're sort of hard to identify no data on health impacts and they're in there as well so it's this mix of nicotine known chemicals that aren't great for you in high doses plus these kind of unknown chemicals as well i have a suspicious nature claire (laughs) so if if you told me there were that many chemicals in tobacco i'd say well you know plants are complex Mm -hmm. but this is not a plant no where are these so are these just accidentally getting in these chemicals or are these some of these deliberately introduced for specific reasons? I know flavour and smell was probably part of it. Yeah, I think that it's a, they, they have different functions, I guess. Flavour mm. and smell are a key component. And and one of the things I find which is so obvious, but then I think it's also worth saying, is when you have a mango vape, it's not got mangoes in it. <laughs> it's got chemicals that yeah. mimic flavours. And yeah. sometimes that's a complex you know, collection of chemicals. So I, it sounds so obvious but at the same time when you walk past and smell pineapple don't think you're smelling pineapple yeah. you're smelling a really complicated concoction of chemicals that makes your brain think pineapple yeah um uh, so, uh, <laughs> that's so funny. i think we're, we're very discerning aren't we with our foods like when yeah. someone says this is you know a berry flavored smoothie and you look at it and you've got it at the fast food store you know yeah. there are no berries in there <laughs> and you kind of know that there's something not quite right about that but you know maybe on an occasion you'll accept that but if, but if you're you wouldn't go and consume that stuff every single day because no. i think and correct me if i'm wrong here but the baseline nutrition rule is the more processed it is forgetting you know milk and homogenization yeah, yeah. stuff but the more high processed stuff the worse it is for you in terms of cancer and so forth yeah. right uh, yes i would assume so i mean i think that's a, a fairly broad statement but yeah generally raw more natural products are the best um and then the other thing to bear in mind with vapes is mostly you don't breathe in anything except fresh air so even mm. things like that that would be healthy to eat are still not healthy to breathe in right so, yeah, yeah. Um, vitamin e acetate was a good example of that that that's not poisonous to eat but it's really bad to breathe in because your lungs aren't developed aren't designed to process that kind of thing so even a natural product i still probably wouldn't breathe it in yeah it's, it's interesting when you, you talk about that because of course the reason that cigarettes work the reason that e-cigarettes work is because we get our, our lungs to do some processing of the chemicals that we're pumping into ourselves mm. to assume that the other was it 243 i'm yep, forgetting that's right. um that the other 242 that we don't want to process are somehow being left out of that equation. That, yeah, that's, that's a good naive, way of putting right? it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is. It's it's hard to – when you can conceive of all of those chemicals just sitting in – you know, absorbed into your lungs, where are they going? That does worry you. Some of it comes back out again. But, mm. um, yeah, it is – it's a very concerning concept. 
When smoking was big, one of the things that we were concerned about, you mentioned just before, is the, the second-hand smoke mm. scenario. Where does that sit with vaping? We don't hear as much about that. Yeah, so I think the data on that's very nascent. Um, what we do know is that the vape cloud itself, so when the vape comes mm. out, it's not actually... a harmless you know nice smelling cloud uh, it's full of what's called particulates and those particulates come from the vape itself uh, and you can detect those particulates in that vape cloud um, particularly if you're in a small space uh, or in a car for example with no windows open the um, level of particulates can rise um, and so I, there's no data yet on the health implications of secondhand vape, um, but um, I still would be really thoughtful if I was a vapor. I would still be very thoughtful about exposing others to it, particularly children. And as a non-vapor, I hold my breath when I walk past right. uh, other vapors. <laughs> yeah. Although that you have to hold your breath for quite a while now if you're walking through the city. <laughs> yeah, despite the need, to, the need, and for me in my case, the love of the smell of pineapples. Yeah, uh, I'm going to avoid that. Now, in in terms of so. Your role in Mindaroo as director of Mindaroo's um, cancer mission, mm. before we get on to what Mindaroo's doing for vaping, just tell us a little bit about that role. What does that involve? Yeah, it's a fantastic role. Um, Mindaroo is an organisation that has been around for a long time. Um, it's a philanthropy, one of the biggest philanthropies in Australia, and we work to um, to have a f- fairer future for all. Uh, and the cancer mission itself focuses on improving outcomes for people affected by cancer, um, and that might include prevention activities, like preventing you know activities to prevent cervical mm. cancer, for example, through to treatment, through to palliative care. Um, so we have a really broad portfolio of programs in the cancer space Um, and the reason why um, this campaign around vaping sits in our portfolio is not because there's um, immediate evidence of cancer being caused by vapes um, but the the reason it sits with me and why I care so deeply about it is because there's quite a lot of evidence now that shows that young people who vape are three times as likely to become a cigarette smoker in the right. future. Um, and so whilst, um, while vapes were invented and sort of sold to us as a pathway out of smoking, there is also clearly a pathway into smoking from vaping. Um, mm. And our data, for example, where we have a lot of dual users, so young people who smoke and vape, two-thirds of them started vaping first and right. then became smokers on top of that. And they would never have become smokers. That, yeah. was, the, that was their path before. And yeah. so that's why I care about it. Two-thirds of um, people who smoke will end up dying from a smoking-related illness, including cancer. And so that's why it's kind of a passion yeah. point for me. I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, when I've read some of the materials on this, and, you know, obviously after I interviewed um, Sandro on this at the start mm. of the year, you know, I got a lot of material sent to me, much of that was from tobacco-sponsored organisations, which, you know, they probably suspect a level of naivety with me there, but having done the show for 30 years and dealt with the climate change deniers for that long, <laughs> uh, I'm good to go. You know, I can sniff this stuff out pretty clearly. And, and it all uses a very similar language, you know. Mm. There's no evidence yet of, and, you know, this sort of stuff. And it uses, you know, the harm minimization sort of mm. um, sneaky way across the line. So, It seems to me as though harm minimization for existing smokers, if vapes are a way to get off that, is a sensible thing to enable. That would seem to be the case. But that's a completely separate topic, in my view, to the initiation of a smoking pathway for our kids with yeah. vapes that and and they're put in the one bucket by these organizations and i think that's the error 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I agree. We do not want any more smokers um, and we want to support smokers in whatever way they feel they need to quit. So widening the pathway for um, vape accessing vapes as a smoker is a really good thing. Um, and it's also a good thing that it's with a prescription because um, having a health professional to support you in your quitting journey is actually really valuable yep. and can make the process easier. But at the same time, it, we don't want it to come at the expense of children and young people who never would have become smokers and so sometimes people ask me you know well which is more harmful vaping or smoking like which one should you know which one if you have to have the two and I sort of think it's like being in a multiple choice exam and only being given A and B but the correct answer is actually C none Mm -hmm. of the above because it's not like young people were going to become smokers um, but now um, there's that opportunity for them to vape and then potentially increases their risk for smoking. So the, the right answer is always C in a multiple yeah. choice, like none of the above. And so I try not to get kind of tied into this argument around which one is um, safer or less harmful than the other. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's a tough one, though, and I have to say seeing some of these arguments coming forward, much like with the climate work, much like with some of the really dodgy gene therapy work that was coming through a decade ago, they're really smart. They're really they're really good at communication. As someone who teaches communication, I can say they're really good at it. Yeah. They they do a spectacular job of, of convincing the wrong people, you know, to support them. And I think that's that's a struggle. So Mindaroo Foundation is taking this on. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a big ticket item, um, and I think it's great uh, under your umbrella there in, in the cancer space. So, what what does that mean? Like, what what is the campaign? Yeah. So we, after doing all of our research, one of my passion points as a researcher, I'm an academic, lifetime academic, is that um, I'm not the sort of academic that will just collect a bunch of data, describe a problem, and then go, oh, that's terrible, and walk away. I, I have this kind of duty or sense of need to do something about a problem and so we watched this problem increase over the last 12 months and even before that with other people's data and thought we need to do something Um, there's also of course wonderful things being done um, by government and by health authorities and what we wanted to do was identify what we could add like where could we play a unique role and so we've just about to launch or have just launched um, our uncloud.org campaign Um, and I think the unique thing about it's a national campaign campaign and it's by youth for youth so one of the things we learned in our research is that um uh, young people actually know the core facts. Like they know that there's chemicals in them. They know that nicotine is addictive, but they still do it. Mm. And so education obviously is the foundation and baseline. But what actually helps to change behavior and change hearts and minds is hearing the stories of other people who are like you. And so our campaign um, is really focuses around 11 young people telling their stories about um, about vaping. Um, some of them are vapors, ex-vapors and non-vapors. And they talk about from their viewpoint in their language what the experience is like for them Uh, and then what's really interesting in the um, in the kind of process of the campaign is they we give them an opportunity to write their own warning labels for vapes so they write completely in their own words if there were warning labels for vapes which there could be in the future somewhat somewhat like the cigarette warning labels Mm. what would they actually say to another young person the same age Um, and so that's kind of a core kind of creative concept Uh, and they embrace that wholeheartedly um 
and in one of our films we um, we follow them driving around in a van at night um, projecting the their warning labels onto the sides of buildings around the city wow. um, and it's a great kind of you know aha moment for them to share their warnings with others mm. uh, and it, uh, if people want to do the same thing then they can go to the uncloud website which is uncloud.org and you can make your own warning labels there just in the in the same kind of um, uh, design as, as as our other young people in the campaign um, and then you've got your own warning label, which you can do with what you want. Put on a T-shirt, put it on a building, whatever you'd like. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I think um, the key is, you know, and you and I, we love to tell people what, what they should and shouldn't do. We're parents, yeah. you know, but, but the reality <laughs> is that's not, you know, I know I have a 16-year-old yeah. and I think I have no idea how to prevent this at the moment. Mm. You know, he walks past a... You know, a shop that sells vapes on mm. the way to school, and we're 150 meters from the gate. Mm. It bothers me. You know, I, I need him to make good decisions and yeah. have the right information. It can't just come from parents saying yeah. no. And yeah, I, I mean, I adore young people because they're so smart mm. and they're so savvy, and they're used to being marketed to all the time. Um, but they also, I think, they just need a voice of authenticity and a voice that they can trust. So a waggy finger from an old person who says vapes may do this 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 um that's kind of just you know goes yeah. over like that's not something that really motivates them but one person who tells them an immediate reaction that they had to a vape is much more powerful yeah. um and in our campaign we're focusing on really evidence-based impacts of vaping um but we also are being very careful to not be kind of panic stricken and call, and you know naming every single thing that could possibly happen so we're very much focusing on immediate impacts um, mm. which might be nicotine addiction uh, nicsic which is like acute nicotine toxicity um, if you have too much nicotine and you can have nausea and vomiting um, and so one of our young pe- people shared her story around the fact that her vomit tasted like vape and that's wow. when that was the motivator for her to quit was this kind of like nobody wants pineapple flavored vomit um and so we kind of focus on those immediate things that really are more prevalent and more immediate for young people because that's what they care about um and we have you know we obviously we're very aware of the evidence of long-term damage and you know concerned about that but we're not focusing on that yet because it's a little bit less clear as to where that evidence will lead just picking up on one of the points here, nicotine addiction, what what does that I, I know this sort of the, the subtle version of that where people struggle to give up smoking. Mm. But what does that mean in the short term for young people, especially given my understanding is some of the nicotine levels are far higher in vapes than they are in cigarettes? Yeah, there's such a range in nicotine levels, so it's very hard to say. Um, some have you know, extremely high levels, some, some do not. Um, but uh, interestingly, our data shows that the cent- like nicotine addiction is increasing over time. And so in our sample, four in 10 young vapors said they felt addicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that could be an underestimate, actually, because um, sometimes you don't realise you're addicted until you try and quit. Right. So we have had a number of young people say to us, you know, I'm not addicted, yeah, it's good. totally fine. Yeah. And then <laughs> the first time they can't find their vape, so we had one young man who said to us, you know, when I couldn't find my vape, disappeared in my bedroom, I literally flipped my room looking for it, right. and then I realised, okay, I actually might have a problem here. Um, so I think there's some arguments around, you know, young people not, are not getting addicted. That is changing quite quickly. 
quickly to having these kind of, you know, fear of not having your vape with you, waking up, feeling like I need to vape within the first 30 minutes, wanting to vape even not in a social situation, at home, in bed, that kind of thing. Those are all warning signs for me that it's turning from just a fun thing to do once Mm. a month to an addiction. And my understanding around addiction is different people have different susceptibilities Mm. too. So you you don't want to find out that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, and that's that's a story we hear is people think, oh, no, I'll be fine because my friend mm. was fine and they quit release and didn't have any symptoms. Uh, and then they try and quit and it's really hard. Um, so some people don't get addicted. They may have other negative impacts of vaping and not mm. the addiction component. But in our, in, our, not in our sample, you know, four out of ten completely acknowledge that they're addicted yeah. um, and it's probably more. Big number. Mm. Now, before we let you go, Claire, you, you said you're, you're an academic, you're a professor. What, <laughs> what was your field of um, endeavour? Or, or I assume you're still doing some of that. Yeah, absolutely. I never let go of research no. completely. <laughs> I'm a medical psychologist. So right. I've always been focused on kids and um, adolescents, young adults, um, and really fascinated about anything to do with behaviour and psychology um, to do with health. So that's why I say medical psychology. Um, so I worked in, uh, in a cancer centre for many years, um, supporting work out research um, and interventions to support um, families to cope with a cancer diagnosis, particularly in children. Uh, And then I've been really passionate about all sorts of other areas related to children and young people like exercise, nutrition, um, education and how that interacts with health. Uh, So all those sorts of things. So I feel like this campaign is a really natural extension of the work I've done over the last 20 years. Yeah. Were you you a young young 10-year-old saying, I want to choose the hardest possible things that you could (laughs) these aren't these aren't trivial topics i mean just emotionally it must be must be troubling to to work in some of these spaces this is these are tough areas yeah it's both difficult and enormously rewarding and so i think for me i've always wanted to do something where it makes a genuine real difference and i think where you can make the biggest difference is in those hardest places um and most people most families find themselves in situations like a cancer diagnosis they didn't they never chose it um and they deserve our support to you know make the best situation they can out of that yeah professor claire wakefield thank you very much for being on the show thank you folks that was claire wakefield director of the mindaroo foundation's cancer mission and just talking about uh, the new campaign which has just started called uncloud to try and deal with this problem of vaping in our kids you're listening to einstein the go on three to blah uh, we'll be back soon Triple I'm Dr. Shane, and today I'm joined with Tian Ju from the University of Sydney in the Charles Perkins Centre. Tian, welcome to the studio. Hey, nice to meet you, Shane, and lovely to be here. It's great to talk to you on such an interesting topic. Um, you you work on venoms, and this is something that you know hopefully none of us ever encounter, but you know they seem to be everywhere in our world. I know you look at both things like snakes and jellyfish. Is there a common ancestry to venoms and where they where they all sort of originate from? Um, so it's very interesting. Um, and obviously living in Australia, we're quite um, conscious of the venomous creatures that um, we inhabit our space with. But interestingly, venoms actually developed over 100 different independent times. So, for example, flight uh, only evolved four independent times. So this is something that really has sprung up um, um, in 
in this extreme manner. And all these different um, organisms from bacteria to, as you say, jellyfish and snakes have landed upon this concept individually. Right. And this is a way, presumably, for all those creatures to incapacitate their, their prey, their food source. Yeah, that's right. So I'd say there's three main types of like this uh, venoms that animals and plants use. Um, so either to, yeah, as you say, catch food or um, they can try and prevent becoming food. So as a form of defense. Um, and also interestingly, in Australia, we have the platypus that is also venomous. Um, and that is used um, for more of a mating ritual. So to, I guess, reproduce and need more food. Yeah, it's interesting. And I suppose in some cases, uh, as you say, this is protective, as in, you know, you, you come near me, you, you know, try and, try and eat me. I'm going yeah. to. Um, now you're, you're, of course, working on how we deal with this because as human beings, this is, this can be deadly and very fast and so forth. What's the current state of play with, say, snakes, for example, in, and anti-venoms? How, you know, how do you access those? Where are they accessible? How do they work? Yeah, so um, as you say, these creatures have evolved these venoms, but unfortunately, because we inhabit the same space, um, we'll come into contact with them, and then unfortunately, some people will be bitten um, or stung. So with snake um, bite antivenoms here in Australia, um, we actually have quite a few um, very good antivenoms, um, and it's accessible here because of um, how fast we can get people to hospitals, because these antivenoms um, need to um, you need to recognize which snake bit you. You need to um, make sure um, that the person doesn't have any side effects when they get it administered. And the antivenom also has to be, in most cases, refrigerated and administered intravenously um, by a professional. And I suppose that the key there is refrigeration. Like that means that in a lot of countries in the world where people aren't nearby to facilities, these antivenoms are just simply not accessible. Yeah, because they're so far away. And if you don't have a reliable cold chain or, as you say, refrigeration, then it takes a long time for individuals who are bitten to get to the hospital if they even get to a hospital. Um, and so it can be very inaccessible and expensive as well. You're, you're doing something quite sophisticated in that you're, you're looking at exactly how these venoms attack our cells. So talk us through that process. How do you work out what, what their targets are? Yeah, so I actually use um, a gene editing technology called CRISPR. Um, I think a lot of people might have heard of this, but it, in, a, in essence, we use it to target our genes and to um, use it as scissors to cut out the gene that we're interested in. So in basically stopping that gene from functioning. Um, I do this across every single gene that we possess. So within the human genome, so that's around 18,000 different genes in a big pool or a big colony of cells. So once we've edited those genes, we can add the venom and then basically see which ones of those cells survive um, and quickly identify which gene that the venom is acting upon. So yeah, this is a quite a new technology and it's fun to basically use this on something um, that is a bit of like a neglected tropical disease rather than doing, say, obviously cancer is important, but cancer and stuff like that. Yeah, so this is fascinating. So of those 18,000 genes, if I take a particular snake, you know, whatever it might be, a, a brown snake, you know, quite common in Australia, very deadly, how many genes is the venom having a crack at? Like how, how many are affected? Is it just one or is it like thousands? Yeah, so from the 18,000 genes, we generally see um, with the venoms around a about 10 to 20 top genes that the venom is affecting. And from that, you can ascertain or identify which, how 
that gene is um, functioning. So a lot of the time we see like surface proteins, so things that are living basically on the surface of your cell. And that makes sense because the venom needs to access the cell surface to then go in and kill it. So yeah, I'd say around 10 to 20. And and why is it that it works so fast? I mean, when, when you sort of think through that process, it sounds like, okay, the tax one cell, a gene is activated, it does something, but but obviously this affects, you know, when someone's bitten by a snake, it affects their entire body very rapidly. How does that how does that happen? Yeah, so um the snakes protein uh snake venom and jellyfish venoms, they're this complex mixture. So they have lots and lots of different things that act in different ways. And they're sophisticated in the sense that they've actually produced also like neurotoxins or toxins that can affect your heart. So those ones will go all the way around your body very quickly and access specific receptors that are on your cells and if we so if we know which genes that are affected what what does that mean in terms of treatment are we still stuck with antivenoms that need to be refrigerated or are there alternatives that we could use that potentially you know use the sophistication of that knowledge of the individual genes to to potentially block what Mm. what the venom is trying to do yeah, so the antivenoms, uh, it's kind of in the name. What we do at the moment is we get small um, bits of the venom, we inoculate a larger animal and get it to basically create these antivenom, uh, antibodies that will attach to the those venom proteins and then stop it from functioning. If we know the exact genes and the exact receptors, instead of using the blood of an, a- of an animal or the serum of an animal, what we can do is actually just find drugs that automatically already block those genes or block those receptors. These drugs can already be FDA approved. They can be on the market for some other purpose. And instead, we'll use it um, in this context um, to stop the venom. All right. So are there there drugs that you've found that are already just sitting on shelves for other things that may be applicable in this case? Uh, Yes, indeed, there are. And I can't say them at the moment, but um, we have them available and hopefully will be, um, they're already tested um, in models and hopefully we can get them um, out to people in the near future. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, presumably because of the way you're you're approaching this problem, this means that it's broadly applicable, not just for snake bites and snake venom, but any sort of venom, which, I mean, they all act in pretty much the same way, right? Yeah, so I guess we went in with the assumption that there would be differences, but also similarities because they have to attack the same host cells, i.e. us or their prey, that maybe they're using similar mechanisms. So of some of the venoms that we've screened, so um, snake venoms, I've recently done the blue bottle jellyfish, and that seems to actually function with the same genes that the snake venom does, as well as another jellyfish, the Atlantic sea nettle. Um, so yeah, there seems to be these common pathways. So maybe in the future we could find maybe like a subset of 10, 15 different pathways and genes, um, and maybe create like a broad acting antidote for everything. That yeah. would be like the big dream. Yeah, that's fantastic. I always have this, have this dreadful fear one day I'll get bitten by a snake and it will slither off before I see what it is. And then, yeah. then I'll be in a much yeah. worse situation than, uh, <laughs> you know, if I'd managed to somehow quickly snap a photo of it, or I wouldn't even be able to identify it even if I did see it. So yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that kind of um, broader approach would certainly, you know, save yeah. a, a lot of lives. Tian, thank you so much for chatting to us today, and uh, this is really exciting research. I I, I think uh, you've got some amazing things coming up in terms of, you know, as you say, there's drugs already there that we can potentially utilize. So it's great chatting to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for your time, Shane. Folks, that was Tian Du from the University of Sydney. Triple R. 
I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm joined by Ryan Hickmott from RMIT University in the Neurodevelopment Protection and Repair Group. Ryan, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Shane. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's great to have you here. Um, we are going to be talking today about brains, which is a, is a super cool topic. So one of the things that I want to ask you first up is why did you get involved in brains? What's the interest in brains? Uh, I think it's one of those things that in science, it's particularly biological sciences, it's still one of those big frontiers of unknown. We, we know pretty much down to the microscopic level exactly how a kidney works, how the lungs work, how the hearts work. Um, but the brain is, we can understand the components. We don't understand so many of the emergent properties that come from the brain doing its thing, which is consciousness, emotions, the things that make us human. Um, on top of that, I, when I was doing my undergrad about oh, over 10 years ago now, I um, used to work for the NHS as a healthcare assistant. Um, I'm from the UK, if the voice didn't give it away. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of patients that uh, back then and still now, we can't do a lot to help and just because of neurodegenerative diseases. And I think that combined with the study I was doing at the time, always kind of put in the back of my head that's like, I want to be working towards um, being some kind of brain researcher in the future. So, uh, yeah, over 10 years later, here I am doing the neuroscience PhD. Yeah, very cool. One of the things you're looking at is the the structure of brains. And I I think we all, I suppose we have this image of a brain being this weird folded sort of crease structure. But my understanding from you is that we don't understand how that folding comes about. Yeah, um, exactly. So um, it's one of those things that even within the broad field of neuroscience, we've never quite worked out um, the exact cellular processes and the genetics of how our brains fold. So folds, uh, to give a quick background on it, they evolved as the way in mammals for like higher intelligence. And it's basically uh, more things can fit into that same space. So you've got the limited space within your skull. And you've got to be able to pack more neurons into that. And um, if you kind of visualize it in 2D, a, uh, a straight line is a shorter distance between two points compared to a curved line. So you have all these curves and folds in your brain, and that maximizes the surface area that you could, of things you can fit inside your brain. So more neurons means more processing power. And on top of that, there's also a structural component to that as well. So um, the way the folds allow the neurons to form networks affects how complex they can be as well. So it's one of the clever ways that, at least in bigger mammals such as us, evolution solved the problem of really advanced intelligence. Yeah, interesting. Do we find that in other animals? Like presumably uh, some of the higher primates have uh, faults in their brains, but what what about everything else? Yeah, absolutely. So this is mostly just a, a mammalian thing, but uh, you'd find um, a good rule of thumb is the bigger the mammal, the more folded their brain. So if we're looking at something like a, a mouse or a rat, pretty much a completely smooth brain. And then as you get uh, a bigger a bigger animal, so cats, dogs, humans, we have really, really folded brains. Same for the aquatic mammals. So dolphins have incredibly folded brains and um, they're famously, famously known as being very, very smart creatures as well. Um, but then you get weird animals as well, uh, such as the ferret. So the ferret's a, a strange small mammal that then um, starts, uh, it's a it's born smooth brain, which is weird. We actually start folding whilst we're in the womb. So do most other folded mammals, but it's born smooth brain. And then about six or seven days after that, it starts to fold. So within the field of neuroscience and brain folding, uh, that's been a key animal that we've looked to for answers over the years. Now, when we talk about folding, we're not just talking about on the surface, are we? We're talking about throughout the entire three-dimensional structure, there are these folds. Is that right? Uh, effectively, yes. Yeah. So um, it's the outside region of the brain is known as the cortex. Um, and that's that's the thing that has effectively uh, evolved to be folded. Um, so you get the deeper layer structures that are a bit more compartmentalized um, and you'll get some complex um, structures within that, but they won't be distinctly folded. So when we talk about the brain folds, it does go fairly deep, but only as deep as the gray matter. And then beneath that, you've got things like the white matter, which tend to be smooth and uh, comprised of different structures compared to the gray matter. And when our brains grow, 
Like, so if I took a, a small child or a baby's brain, is it folded from that point forward? Like, and it just grows with the folds or they're not growing folds on folds on folds, are they? Is it the size that's just extending? What's happening? Yeah, so it's it's a bit of both. So um, we'll all start off as obviously a tiny, tiny little embryo. And as our body plan forms and takes shape, we'll be growing all of our different organ systems at the same time. And it's around 24 weeks. So like start of second trimester, we'll start to get these folds emerging in humans. Um, and then those folds will keep getting more and more complex. So these are the primary folds because they appear first. Um, and then towards um, at end of pregnancy, once we're born, we'll have most of those forming uh, or being formed. And then we'll have this, the secondary folds and finally the term folds and the primary folds are basically the exact same between me you any other human on earth and often pretty similar between other mammalian species as well so evolution's basically realized that this structure and shape is the blueprint i'm going to keep that the same but once you get to your tertiary folds that can basically be almost like a fingerprint so um that and that will change in subtle ways throughout your whole life but definitely through those kind of key early windows between being born and up through puberty and becoming an adult, there'll always be shifts and changes in how your brain grows and adapts. And that would be mostly your brain forming in response to stimuli as you become a person. Wow. In- incredible stuff. We So as you mentioned, we don't understand this folding process. So how do you go about studying, you know, to try and work out what's causing the folding? Well, uh, as I said before, uh, a big animal in my field has been the ferret. So people often uh, turn to what we call animal models. Uh, to look at how how the uh, brain in those creatures, which are similar to us, how they develop. And there's a bunch of tools that scientists have at their disposal these days. It can be things like genetic engineering. So you can identify a gene that you think, oh, I think this is associated with brain development. And you can knock that out. You can overexpress it. So uh, more of that gene is active. So a higher quantity of the protein it controls is being expressed. And you can see what, what effect that has. A lot of that's been done over the last 50, 60 years. And as I said, despite doing all of that, we've still not really worked out what's happening with the folds. There's obviously the ethical consideration of these are living creatures and they're complex living creatures um uh, as are even non-fobic creatures such as mice are complex living mammals so as much as possible particularly being in the 21st century we want to be moving away from those kind of models so this is where my part of the project comes in for my lab which makes me really excited these things called brain organoids and they've come out they were almost to the exact day actually they were invented 10 years ago Uh, by an incredible researcher uh, based in the UK called Madeleine Lancaster, and she made the first brain organoid. And all you've got to do is get some stem cells. You can spin them into a tiny little ball, and then using the right chemical factors, you poke them into becoming the type of organ you want. So you can tell it to become a mini version of a heart, a mini version of a brain. So obviously we're doing brains. And all you've got to do is then watch it. It will start to self-assemble because it's got that 3D structure. It will know how to feed off the cells around it and start making its own little microenvironment. And it will start assembling into like a tiny, tiny version of a brain. So we can use that to study how uh, the brain or any organ uh, develops in general. Um, yeah, like I said, they've been around for about 10 years and people can do anything from messing with the genes in those things to see how that affects development. We can test new drugs on these things as well. The big issue we're finding at the moment is because like I said, they're mini brains. They're not full on organs. Then they don't have the same level of complexity as a real brain, which is a shame for us, but we're getting better all the time, but they tend not to fold like a real brain does. So a big issue for us in our lab. So my thing, um, which was the idea I had at the start of my thesis about four years ago was, can we take a ferret stem cell? So it keeps the ferret alive, which is lucky. We take the ferret stem cell, we spin that into a ball, and we tell that to become a brain. And because of the unique speed and timing of how the ferret develops, my hypothesis is that hopefully they're going to start to show us these folds um, in the way that the human ones don't. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. And when we talk about these little organoid brains, like they're, they're mini brains, but what mm. what features do they have? Do they do they grow neurons and do they have sort of electrical firings? I mean, there are, obviously there's no consciousness going on there. I get that, but um, but like how how many of the sort of activities of a, of a normal part of our brain can they mimic? Yeah, so th- that's actually a really good question. And um, it, even the consciousness thing actually is um, you're, you're right. They're probably not conscious, but there's a small area of ethical debate where maybe at some point they will do, and I, I can. Talk talk a bit more about that later on if you like but um yeah they definitely have neurons so they start off with what we call like i said we start off with the stem cells and then once we tell them to start becoming more neural type they go to different stages of uh what we'd call like a pre-neuron and they're like they're really highly dividing cells they're making lots of copies of themselves and then they start splitting off and layering and layering and layering up and then they start becoming uh baby neurons or immature neurons and then after that they mature and they start to take structural position around the sphere of this little brain that we're growing so we can see that they are growing neurons we know they're making connections to one another um and if you put them on a tiny little chip that can measure electrical activity you can see them talking to each other as well there's these waves of uh, neural ne- network activity happening as well and right. you can even do things such as stimulate it on one side and see the pathway of the of the signal traveling through the brain so um yeah they're very complex very complex models and the more advanced versions of those in the last few years have been making what we call assembloids, where you make an organoid that's very specific to the brain region you want to look at. So you can look at the front of the brain, at the prefrontal cortex. You could look at uh, the visual centers, so the occipital lobe, and you can make them as separate organs or organoids. And then you can put them together and they're now an assembloid and they'll start to send out signals and talk to one another and start to connect. That's just wild stuff. And in terms of the... You mentioned earlier the use of uh, drugs and so forth on these. Are we starting to see that where we're testing testing potential treatments for various uh, conditions of the brain with these organoids? Are there limitations to that, or is I mean, it's a, if you can take some of my stem cells, grow some some of my brain tissue up in a dish, and and not test you know new drugs on me, that would seem to be a pretty good idea. Yeah. So there's a few different ways uh, this is being done, which is quite exciting. So. Um, when we take the stem cells, people often think of um, embryonic stem cells, and there has always been an ongoing ethical debate around that because, unfortunately, uh, to get access to embryonic stem cells, um, that does involve access in the embryo, and that means that embryo is obviously not going to become a person. One of the amazing discoveries in the last 15 or so years has been what we call induced pluripotent stem cells. Now, that's a bunch of scientific words that we don't have to worry about, but what it basically means is we can take any one of your cells, we usually take a skin cell because it's easy to get to, uh, and that's called a fibroblast. And when we give it the right uh, combination of genes that we put inside it, and it turns it back into a stem cell. So we've now got a cell that is genetically you that we've turned back into a stem cell that I can now use to make a heart, a, a kidney, a brain, whatever I want. And if you happen to have a specific genetic disease, say Huntington's, for example, we can now make an exact version of your brain with your exact gene mutations and all your other genes that make up you and test personalized drugs on that. So this is arguably one of the big evolutions in us getting us getting us closer to personalized medicine. Uh, the other side of things is even if we don't do the personalized to the individual, is if this really does replace animal models, and that's probably that's not going to happen tomorrow, but we're definitely getting there. We could arguably skip the need to do lots of the preclinical testing, which is testing on animals, and get closer to doing human trials. And there actually are some some cases where that's being allowed already in the States under the FDA. So it's, it's getting closer and closer. I imagine the next 15, 20 years, we will still be doing them alongside one another. We'll still be doing the animal testing alongside the organoids. And once we've got enough data that says, hey, we didn't find 
any risk factors that appeared in one model versus the other, we can definitely just do the organoids from now on, maybe combined with some computer modeling too. Then we can cut out the animals entirely and just get straight to testing drugs in humans. Yeah. Ryan, I think it's, uh, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's great work and there's, there's so many reasons to do it. There's the ethical aspects, as you've mentioned, but also the, the speed of delivery of potential treatments to an individual. So not to a population, but to an individual, which is, is hopefully going to be there when we're doing tests on people's own cells to make sure that particular medications work for them. Thanks so much for chatting to me today and good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you so much to begin to chat. Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm joined now by Kaiwen Beaton, a second-year PhD candidate at Curtin University at the Perrin Institute. Kaiwen, welcome to the studio. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Shane. It's great to talk to you. You're doing research in the area of concussion, which is a, a pretty big deal. How, how big a problem is this in our community? I would say it's uh, much bigger than most people actually have in mind. So it's called the silent epidemic for a reason uh, and essentially it's having a huge impact on society like 80 percent of all traumatic brain injury is mild uh, and a lot of those people don't even get seen at a hospital so quite quite huge in terms of the the impact i mean i think many people are aware of that short-term impact of what's happening in a concussion but how do you know that you've got a concussion when you you know you have an injury in sport or otherwise in the short term yeah, so short term, we have some processes in place at the moment to try and determine if you have had a concussion, but there is nothing concrete. So there's no way to say yes or no. We go by potential loss of consciousness, um, symptoms that you show afterwards, how you're feeling, if there's any like altered state, we call it. So if there's any dizziness or uh, retrograde amnesia, but there is no definitive way to say, yes, you have a concussion. It's more you're showing you know, these many boxes are ticked, so we're going to say you have one. Yeah, and so the symptoms in that case would, would be what? If, I, if I'd if i had a nasty head injury and, you know, I was presumably concussed, what, what sort of symptoms would I be experiencing? Yes, yeah, so we actually say that the symptoms cover four symptomatic domains. So most people tend to think of uh, headaches and nausea and maybe some dizziness, but it can also look like being more emotional or having a lot of light sensitivity. There's sleep disturbances, so sometimes people can sleep too much or too little or have fatigue. And then there's also the emotional aspect, some stuff from anxiety and depression. So although, yes, headaches and nausea are quite common, there's actually a lot more to concussion than just that hmm. and these things presumably these acute sort of symptoms they clear over days weeks how long are we looking at there for the short-term stuff so the short-term stuff, so we call the spontaneous recovery period, although it's not set in stone either. So in the literature, it tends to be between three and six months, but essentially we say spontaneous recovery within three months. Uh, after that, we would call that uh, persistent post-concussive symptoms, and that can actually occur in up to 50% of cases. Yeah, and, and so that, that was what I wanted to sort of lead to next. What what do we see in terms of that long, longer term? I mean, 50% of cases is an enormous number. You know, it's basically, well, half of all healthy <laughs> patients. But, you know, what, what sort of effects are we seeing over that longer period? Yeah, so we see the symptoms I mentioned earlier just being prolonged uh, and can go on and on for months and, and years. And there's no real way, again, to say, yes, this is as a result of a concussion or that this is directly linked to that. 
But what we do see is that often they'll reflect and say, oh, yeah, this has been happening since I received a concussion. And they're not noticing because the symptoms are so common. If I asked you if you'd had a headache in the last six months, I'm sure you probably have. Um, but these people are experiencing them maybe a couple of times a week or even daily. But it's not limited to headaches. So people might be more emotional and only register it once it's been this prolonged period of time. Mm. Interesting. Now, your research is on essentially trying to deal with this longer term impact of concussion. How do we go about that? How do we go about repairing presumably parts of the brain that are affected? Yeah, at the moment, uh, all we can do is treat the symptoms. But my research in particular is looking at going to the origin. So we want to see the brain injury itself. And what we notice is a change in brain activity acutely and chronically, so short and long term after the injury. And we're trying to train the brain essentially to heal itself with regulating that activity. So returning the activity to normal over multiple sessions in hopes that that will address the symptoms. Because if you think about it, the symptoms have to be coming from somewhere. And if the injury was to the brain, then surely we can fix the brain and it'll fix the rest. Yeah, this is amazing. I mean, what sort of scale are we working on here? Is this like individual neurons that have been damaged or is it whole networks? Like where where do you think that sort of disconnect or problem is occurring? What scale are we are we having to address this? Yeah, so with the brain activity, we look at large synchronization of neurons. So we are talking about networks, so slightly larger scale. But what we see is this over and under compensation when someone gets an injury. So sometimes the site of the injury itself will actually have more activity than we expect because it's trying to compensate. And then other areas connected to that network might have lower activity because it's now being you know, redirected into the spot of injury. So it doesn't necessarily look like maybe what you'd expect is, oh, you get an injury there and that's where we see it become a deficit. Uh, and that's also why it has quite a widespread impact on the brain because it is all connected we're not just seeing impact site being affected it's the whole brain the whole network so we're having to treat multiple areas within the brain yeah so in real terms what does that look like in terms of treatment like if if my brain isn't doing what it's supposed to in that space and i'm not talking about the headaches necessarily but other cognitive difficulties and so forth like how do you go about fixing that or or you know repairing that or augmenting that like what's the actual process yeah, so my research, uh, we actually wanted to make a personalized therapeutic intervention. So I would look at your brain using an EEG. So we're looking at the brain activity for your brain directly. We compare that to a standardized cohort. So we're comparing it to a group of what we would deem normal brains matched age sex handedness. And it can give us this score which says you are this far away from normal for all the regions of your brain. So we look at every single region over all these different frequencies. We get a lot of data out of it. And what we can say is, okay, we see, let's say, the back left side of your brain, we see uh, increase in activity and on the right side, we see a decrease. So what we're going to do is we're going to target that left side and try and train it back down to normal. So we're trying to reduce the activity in hopes that it'll have a flow on effect to the rest of the networks. Interesting. And what kind of timeframes are we talking about? Like how long would I have to do that sort of training with you to see the the sort of the benefit of it or the removal of any deficits I might be feeling? 
Yes, in the literature, we tend to see 18 to 22 sessions. So we are doing uh, six weeks, three times a week. So you have to kind of do it quite, you know, frequently, but we don't want to do it every day because then that way you can get fatigued. So we do essentially almost every second day, but three times a week for six weeks. And the session itself runs for about 20 minutes or so. And are you, is this already happening actual patients and what, what are the outcomes of people seeing the impacts of it? Like how, how successful is it? Yeah, so just between you, me, and the entire audience listening, um, we are doing an ongoing investigation, but we have had multiple cases. And one of the most incredible moments was having this participant come in who was suffering from migraines and headaches almost daily, rating really highly on our post-concussive symptom scale, did the six weeks, had a full alleviation of all symptoms. Every single symptom was gone, commented that the headaches were gone about halfway through um, and, yeah, complete, completely fine, had, like, a great reaction to it, suffers from no headaches um, and were able to do a little bit of a follow-up uh, informally just to see how they were going and they have said that, yeah, it hasn't come back yet. So yeah, looks phenomenal. good. Yeah. yeah. So- and I suppose the, the the most interesting part about this is it's non-pharmaceutical, it's non-physical um, intervention, it's completely non-invasive, yeah? Completely non-invasive, just training the brain. And when I first heard about this technique, I didn't believe it, if I'm being completely honest with you. I didn't think that we could necessarily retrain the brain without any kind of intervention to heal itself, in my mind. Uh, but after having seen it, it was just mind-blowing and we didn't just see the area we were targeting being healed we actually saw a fallen effect to the rest of the brain and it wasn't just that one case we've had a couple others so Mm. yeah we're seeing great results and it might sound necessarily like we're doing you know a game brain training and it's all a bit nintendo switchy but actually it is it is working and it's fantastic sounds great uh kywin beaton from curtin university at the parent institute thanks so much for chatting to us today Thank you so much, Shane. I'll see you next time. Well, that pretty much wraps us up for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening to Einstein Go Go yet again. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm going to hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It, and they'll take you through all the way till 1 o'clock. Hope you're having a fantastic Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll be back in about a week, slightly less, to give you more science once again on Triple R. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.